Hi, and welcome to the podcast on globalization and bond yields. Um, and what this podcast and, and associated post is talking about and thinking about is a sort of continuation of the ideas uh, that I've been talking about uh, ever since I started this website. Um, and what I'm looking at and thinking about is does the intensity of labor competition uh, really drive interest rates and inflation? And the idea behind it, which is one I've discussed before, is that if the average person is not seeing increasing wages or increasing return on labor, uh, and certainly you know increasing fast on inflation, then it's very hard for prices to go up. And what that means is if people have no money, then you can't really raise the prices for for most uh, for most products. And certainly that would be in line with what we've seen over the last ten to fifteen years is corporates have made more money often by cutting costs rather than growing the top line. There are some exceptions to this, of course. But we've really been in a period where you know, getting cash flow higher through cost control, consolidation, cartels, uh, and then buying back shares by issuing cheap, very, you know, very cheap debt or expensive debt if you're buying it, um, has been the growth model for the last few years. And so I started thinking about uh, labor and what drives labor uh, and you know what I find very appealing about this idea of of labor and its share of income driving interest rates is that when we look at let's say a very long interest rate uh, history of interest rates and a good one is the Bank of England bank rate uh, you know they've got data going back to the late 1600s through to today what you see is that you know for for centuries. Uh, the Bank of England bank rate was largely around you know four to five percent. You go up a bit, down a bit, but it didn't really move much until we got to uh, the Second World War when the rate was set very low for a long time, and then when it was de- you know in the sixties and seventies we had this huge breakout in interest rates up to sixteen seventeen percent, um, and it was a, the era of stagflation, and then suddenly. Uh, and uh, suddenly is in the context of looking at a chart that's 400 years or you know, 300 and a bit years, it, rates dropped down to new all-time lows, lower than any time we'd seen before, including the Great Depression. And so you're sort of thinking, okay, you know, we've had a huge change after World War II that then reversed and went the other way. And when you think about labor uh, and the, the way labor and, and wages were set, that change matches up with interest rates much, much better. Um, now, there are, I think, two ways to think about labor competition. The, the typical way it's done, of course, is unionism. A uh, uh, number of people are a member of a union, for example, uh, and changing rules for unions. And, you know, classically that chart shows un- union membership in the West anyway rose post-World War II and then started declining from the 80s down to very low levels in the private sector. Well, I was thinking it would be a more interesting way, and certainly for a country like Japan, where uh, they don't really have the same sort of union culture, but they certainly have a sort of social structure for pricing. Uh, and Japan is a good place to start because really, you know, wages have not really moved since the mid, mid-90s. Now, that may sound uh, impossible or incredible, but I can tell you for a fact that, you know, I was a, a part-time English teacher right, in 94. 9495 in Japan uh, and the price you know, wage I used to get then was 2000 yen an hour and uh, a few years ago I was back in in Osaka where I used to live 
ran into some English teachers, asked them what the price, you know, what they were getting. It was still 2,000 yen per hour. So, you know, this idea that wages are being stagnant in Japan since the, the early 90s, I think, is not even, it's not an idea, it's, it's true. Um, so when I look at the Japanese uh, experience, you know, I'm trying to get an idea of did competition destroy Japan for its ability to, to raise wages. So one of the first things you should remember is that in 1985, uh, there was a plaza accord signed by the major governments of the world and basically said that the dollar was too expensive. And so at that time, the yen rose significantly. And at that time, everyone expected the Japanese stock market to do poorly because something was becoming uncompetitive. But the Bank of Japan cut rates, you know, stoked a huge property and credit bubble. Uh, but what was, you know, really, you know, and what you could see is Japanese GDP per capita, which I'm using as a sort of measure of, of wages. It's not 100% correct, but it's close enough for our purposes. What you then had was by the sort of mid-90s, Japanese GDP per capita was, you know, three, four times higher than South Korea, uh, you know, 10 times higher than Malaysia and, you know, multiple, multiples higher than, than China. And so suddenly, you know, Japanese uh, workers looked very, very uncompetitive. And certainly, I think in the in the early to mid '90s, a lot of work left Japan, a lot of labor or factory jobs left Japan, and then went to uh, Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. And this, of course, uh, this trend of labor arbitrage was made worse by the Asian financial crisis, when suddenly Korea, Malaysia, and all these places devalued massively and gained regained competitiveness. And so, these two things, the Plaza Accord and then the Asian financial crisis really did a kibosh on, on Japanese wages. And without wages rising, it was very hard to get any inflation. The, the, the second thing that then came along, you know, and, and, and in the late 90s, early 2000s, Japan looked like it was maybe breaking out again. In 2001, China joined the WTO and started to export as well. And so you got, you know, Korea and Malaysia are relatively small relative to Japan. Japan's a very large country, 120 million. But China, you know, 1.4 billion people. You know, this is a vast market. And so, you know, you know, and a vast number of workers. So this must have been putting huge downward pressure on, on wages um, uh, in Japan. And, you know, what I find, and I think this analysis is broadly correct, you know, without wages, without being able to raise wages in Japan, you haven't had inflation. Now, what I think is interesting is we look at GDP per capita, China is now at sort of Malaysian levels. And what I think I perceive, and I'm going to talk about this a bit further on, is somewhere around the $10,000 per capita, GDP per capita, there's no real gain from moving a job from the West or Japan to a country anymore. All of the gains you get from that cheaper labor uh, have to be offset by you know longer supply lines and other issues. It seems to be largely gone, and we see this later on. Malaysia is at 10k, you know, GDP per capita 10k doesn't really take export jobs anymore. And now China's at that level, um, and so it seems to me you know we're getting to a point where the downward pressure of globalization on wages is is beginning to dissipate. Um, and you know, interesting, especially for Japan is South Korean uh, GDP capita is, is not far off Japanese levels now. So for me, a lot of the downward pressure for or deflationary pressure in Japan 
looks like it may be coming to an end sooner rather than later. Now, can we can we sort of test this theory a little bit? So the best place to look, I think, is the EU. So the EU is a little bit different in that it's had a much long it has a long history of countries coming in, but when they join the EU, they get free movement of labor, free movement of capital, um, and 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 a fixed exchange rate as well. But it it does mean that the adjustment process should be brutal, but a little bit quicker because also people can move between countries. So to speed up the, the normalization of uh, wages and costs. And so what with Europe, we can look at GDP per capita. Now, Spain uh, joined the EU in, in 1986 and was a low cost producer there. And what we can see is that Germany really struggled from the 19, 1990s, 2000s. Um, you know, GDP per capita fell, even the Spanish, Spanish ones sort of rose slightly. Um, and it was only, re you know, and so, you know, you did see this competitive pressure from Spain, which is, it's not as large as Germany, it's still a large country was putting on. And then what we've seen is, you know, since 2000, uh, since the financial crisis, Spanish uh, GDP capita has fallen as Polish GDP capita has risen. But what's interesting is German uh, GDP capita is not falling. I, what I take this to mean is, you know, Spain and Poland are, are sort of competing for a sort of more low-level, uh, more low-level automaker, automotive jobs or jobs like that. And definitely Poland has put Spain, pressure on Spain and Italy in that area. But Germany, which is much more high-tech, seems to see its GDP holding up quite well. Um, and it would imply to me, because if we look at the experience of Spain, at a certain point, you know, once the imbalances between nations are, uh, uh, normalized for, for R and D and productivity, you can then get wages to rise again. And if I look at the EU, the chances that we get, they add any new countries to EU look very slim. The only one that could have made a big difference was Ukraine, but that looks very unlikely at the moment. Um, and then, you know, what we can do just for a final comparison is look at when, uh, Mexico joined NAFTA in 1993. Now, Mexico had a much lower GDP to capita than either US or Canada, and it did very well for a while. But again, it's topped out around this 10,000 US dollars uh, per capita, uh, GDP per capita, which again seems to imply even with countries that share long borders like Mexico and US, once you get to around 10,000 US dollars, there's no big uplift from shifting your worker from one country to another country. Uh, and what we can see with the US is there's no, you know, there's no, seems to be no downward pressure on GDP per capita in, 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 in the US, despite Mexico being a member of NAFTA. Um, and so what I'm, where I'm coming to is a saying that the US, we in, in North America with a rich Canada to the north, a sort of poor Mexico to the south has been able to adjust to lo lo those two labor markets relatively easily without seeing GDP per capita fall or be stagnant. Now, what we've seen in, in Japan, it's had to, Japan was the richest country in Asia by a long way for a long time. But you know, relative to the population, the Japanese population relative to the Asian population was very, very small and still very small, even though it's a big country. And so as the rest of Asia has industrialized, that's put huge downward pressure on wages in Japan, which to me, given the job that China has done, looks to be dissipating. Um, there are other countries, of course, that could still take work like Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, potentially, and they're all large countries, but they don't quite have the same infrastructure as, as, as China. 
you know, the implications are that the, the, the deflationary pressures in Japan, I think, are beginning to dissipate. Um, and in Europe as well, we've had a sort of decade of stagnation as the you know, credit crisis unwound. And we've seen, but what we're seeing is what we expected to see is German wages are now rising above wages in the, or GDP per capita in the rest of Europe, which should mean that at some point, you know, inflationary pressures should start to rise in wages in Europe as well. Um, and, you know, so, you know, for me, unless China surprises and devalues massively, um, which is still a risk, but, you know, longer, you know, it, it should have happened if it was going to happen uh, a few years ago. And it looks to me like they're happy to keep the renminbi strong and they've got a very pro-labor policy uh, in place. This, it's to me the risk of inflation coming back in Europe and Japan is quite large. Now, rising wages and inflation, you would think, would be quite good for, for real assets like equities. Potentially, yes. Uh, the only issue I would say is that uh, uh, the markets and the economy uh, over the last 10 years has become very accustomed to low interest rates. Um, and there's certainly a lot of financial leverage in markets. So if the idea that inflation is coming back and you know higher interest rates as well will lead to, I think, a bit of market turbulence. And that's definitely what we've seen over the last week or, or certainly so far in 2022. Um, anyway, that's my ideas. Thank you for listening. Um, and I'll do another podcast soon.